Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay Anelli, and I don't remember what sleep is. Andrew? Hi, I'm Andrew Weissel, and I do remember what sleep is, because I don't have a child, so sleeping is great. <laughs> he was literally up twice last night. Carrie, do you remember what sleep is? Uh, yeah, I am playing Overwatch competitive matches at 3 a.m., though, because that's the best time to find people to queue with, so... <laughs> But I don't remember it all the time. You're I, also I, comparatively to us still a child, so you you compare. still have a body that can sustain those kinds of hours. I did just turn twenty three. Oh my Woo-hoo. god! At 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 Carrie's age, yes, I was hanging out. Coming home was five a.m. from playing video games and watching eighties action movies all night. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so today uh, we're going to talk about Return to Dominaria episode three. Uh, these names Revenge of the easy Sith. Keep, <laughs> these names help uh, make it easy to track the episodes, but they do lack a little bit of that flavor. This episode is all about gathering the crew of the Weatherlight. But before we get to that, we have some news and some previews we want to talk about. Not our previews, but things that were previewed this week. I feel like we have to make that clear every time. It's a weird preview season, and... People have no idea where and when preview cards are going to sprout out of the ground at this point. Um, so yes, these these are all mo- official Mothership previews from this past week. So the first very cool note that we got was that there are in fact five Talarian Academies right now. Not yeah. just Talaria West. Um, there is Talaria West in the Spice Isles. Latnam is a uh, Talarian Academy, which I imagine, since Joda just got mentioned in the story, that's the one that he's in charge of, because that's where the, his School of the Unseen used to be. Yep, if you listen to our Ice Age episode, uh, there's been a wizard school at Latnam for literal millennia. Since a few decades after Zero AR. So, 4,500 years, thereabouts? Ish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's one on Orvada in Walasa near the Burning Isles. Uh, the Burning Isles are where Urborg and um, Bogarden and Bogarden, yeah. There's a bunch of there's a bunch of islands in there that are important at some point. And Walasa is one of them. Apparently, the ruins of old Talaria are in a a, uh, a wizard's academy now. I guess for merfolk. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure who who else could survive down there. Oh, Hummerids could survive, but Hummerids are are known for not using magic, so it's definitely not them. And it's definitely too warm. Oh, that's where you learn to play Lantern Control, the <laughs> Academy Ruins. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hate that thing. So then the, the fifth Academy is the Shadow Academy. Mysterious. They're kind of cagey because they were like, it doesn't have a specific location. So the question is... With a name like Shadow and the the ability Shadow, is it kind of slightly phased out from the rest of Dominaria, and that's why it doesn't have a specific place? It's hard to describe. Like, so is it just decentralized? the The Shadow ability from the Tempest block was because Wrath was an artificial plane. As they built it, some beings got stuck, kind of in between realities, um, where they. I don't. I don't like. I want to use the word plane, but plane means something in, like in magic already. So like the the sh- the shadow civilizations on Wrath could interact with each other, but not with anyone else on Wrath, um, and vice versa. Um, and then during the Wrathly overlay, those uh, remnants of those civilizations still exist on Dominaria, at least as of Time Spiral. The best modern description I can think of for it is uh, like uh, Kaya's ability, where yeah. she kind of ghosts phases into a like the ghostly plane. Yeah. So, so I I think because of the name, and and it's not in a specific location, I think that could be a hint that maybe there's, you know, you know, and, and Shadow showed up in blue, which is you know the Talarian Academy Wizard School color. Uh, main color at least um so maybe uh there's kind of a a shadow quasi existent 
academy for shadow wizards um they're probably i i would imagine it's not just going to be blue it's we're going to see well, blue red black and white represented in these wizards right at least um, on dominaria as a tribe well we we know we know we know the draft is going to be built around blue and red we've seen a couple of the preview cards already focusing on blue red wizards as a as a draft archetype but like so shadow also could just mean like in the shadows mysterious so maybe there's like a hidden location that like moves around and maybe like when the null moon is at a certain height in the sky you have to say an incantation at this place and you know and then if the real moon on another night is in a different place you have to say a different incantation at this place to get in maybe it's something like that something like really arcane and hard to find and not always in the same place kind of like the um, god what was the room in harry potter i'm blanking on it <laughs> listeners will <laughs> know if you if you if you, re- if you read harry potter or watch the movies i never watched harry potter if you, you read harry potter about? or watch the movies there there's a room in hogwarts that kind of kind of moves around and is hard to get to and, and that's where they the, the kids form their whole army thing and maybe it's yeah. something like that i don't know so Let's I disagree on. with. Oh, I was okay. going to say I disagree with both of you too. Could be an online academy, or <laughs> could be Vesuva. Vesuva. I would love if yeah. it was Vesuva. Actually, clone Talarian Academy. That's funny. <laughs> uh, okay, let's move on to our to the preview cards we wanted to talk about. The yeah. first is Merfolk Trickster because a whole lot of people have been asking questions about the flavor text which says saved from destruction by one planeswalker's sacrifice the illiterate colony and i know it sounds like they're illiterate like they can't read the illiterate colony forswore the taking of life now what that refers to is an apocalypse a a planeswalker named Bo lavar who's one of my favorite because he managed to uh retain his humanity despite being an old walker he just really liked sailing and smuggling and that's all he did despite having the power of a god <laughs> is it really smuggling if you're a godlike being though yeah yeah laws still apply to you <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, th- that's really debatable for many planeswalkers true true so w- what happened is uh the nine titans their mission they sort of succeeded they blew up phyrexia came back um lord Windgrace and Elise kind of disappeared from the story they'd reappear in time spiral uh Commodore Guff did a whole bunch of fourth wall stuff where he erased his journal so that the the good guys could win because otherwise it didn't the story didn't make sense. He literally was would talk about the story and writing the story. It was dumb. Yeah. And what Bolivar did is he realized he couldn't fight Yagmoth and he wanted to save something and he found this this colony of artists and just used all his power to cast a spell of protection over their colony in this merfolk colony he cast it in such a way that anyone who wanted to seek uh, shelter there would find it and it would continue to grow as the people of the city did which i thought was pretty cool so that was the that's the origin of that and they honor him by not taking life the next card we want to talk about is triumph of gerard which looks amazing uh, it's reminiscent of, uh, what's that statue called? Slaying the Dragon. Slaying the Dragon. Pretty much in the same pose. Yeah, Gerard's art very much imitates that. And this is a scene also from Apocalypse, uh, where it's kind of stylized, where the crew of the Weatherlight were on the deck, and they were fighting off Yogmoth, whose death cloud was sending these tentacles up at them. Uh and so this is kind of a stylized representation of that, except the spear that Gerard is fighting with, the blade of the spear is the weatherlight, and the um, the haft of the spear, I guess you would call it, the, the other side of the spear, uh, was the null moon. And so the spear's shaft is the beam of uh, white mana uh, that the weatherlight was using to try and kill Yogmoth at first. So that's a pretty cool reference. I think we talked about that a lot in a previous episode, though, so I don't want to go into that too much here. Did I miss anything on that one? Do you guys want to talk about that? And, uh, well, and it's it's a cool testament to um, 
we, we've mentioned before how the, the sagas and the legendary sorceries don't necessarily show events as they happened. It's how modern dominarians tell the stories about them. So, like, we know that Yogmoth was not killed by Gerard taking a spear to him from the Weatherlight. You can spin myths about Gerard being this triumphant hero all you want, but the reality is that that whole sequence failed and they had to activate the legacy weapon with Karn afterwards to actually kill Yogmoth. But you only know that if you read the novel because the average Dominarian was down on the ground fighting Frexians or not at all near this event um, and only heard about it secondhand. So they don't even know that the whole legacy weapon thing was a thing. So, right. so, so in their tellings of the story, yeah, Gerard slayed Yogmoth and saved Dominaria from the Frexian invasion. Um, so he gets to be the mythic hero that Urza bred him for, even if that's not the reality of the event, which I think is cool. So it makes Dominaria feel really lived in, uh, which is important for the, the theme of history to really come through. Yeah. So the next one we have kind of relates to Gerard in that epic uh, mural sense, except this one is stained glass because it's the history of Benalia. And this is an amazing piece by Noah Bradley. Uh, it, it depicts like a stylized Torsten von Ursus or Ursus. I'm not really Ursus. sure how to say it. He's a he's an old legends character who in a a very early magic story on the website that isn't even available anymore you have to find it in uh, the wayback machine uh we'll link to it with the show uh called history of banalia it talks about how he found banalia in the um he found the ruins of the shilton empire having collapsed and he reunited it with his seven lieutenants calling it banalia and then Upon his death, his lieutenants, who thought one of them would inherit the leadership of the nation, he found that he left leadership of the nation to all seven of them to share. Uh, And so there are seven clans of Benalia that are the ruling clans, one of which was Gerard's clan, the Capuchin. Uh, And that number seven is represented all over this artwork. There are seven swords around uh, Torsten. Uh, there are seven moons, seven mountains, seven towers. But that's the art. That's the intentional art stuff. But if we want to dig deep and get real Dan Brown about it, um, there are seven letters when in the name. What was that? I said, and when don't we? <laughs> um, well, this is a little tinfoily even for us. But there's also seven letters in the name Banalia. They're in the rules text. Um, if you add up the four numbers that appear, a two, a two, a two, and a one for the two, two, nine, and the plus two, plus one, that equals seven. And the collector's number on this card is 21, which is three sevens, one seven for each chapter in the story. (laughs) And together with the four things in the art, that's seven sets of seven. It's very auspicious. So I should also (laughs) note that... That's, that's amazing, Andrew. It really is. And that's uh, how you stop the evil assassin that someone hired because that's somehow what history professors do in Dan Brown novels. So the the other thing I want to mention about this is it's also uh, the stained glasses and the shape of the Benalia symbol. So like that shape that we will see on uh Benalian soldiers' armors or their gauntlets. It's kind of this um, tapering outward shape. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to describe. It looks a bit like the the tang of a sword. Uh, you can see that in the background behind Torsten. When we get more, well, we should note, and when we get more preview cards to look at beautiful art on, we'll mention that again when we see it. So the next one we want to talk about is The First Eruption by Stephen Belladin. And oh my god, this this card looks amazing. The story about the making of this card I think is way more interesting than the story the card tells. Like So, so it's the history of Shiv, which is this huge volcanic island in northern Dominaria. Um, known, obviously, for its dragons, the Shivan dragons. You know, of which, you know, Daragaz and um, Rorik's Bladewing were Shivan dragons. 
Um, so the the history is is basically just oh this volcano started erupting out of the ocean and formed this island and there were dragons on it and then there were the the humans the the Gitu tribes the Fayashino right. the lizard people and goblins was and the, the goblins, other ones who no one loves yeah um so the the story is basically that everything was on fire and they were all happy about fire and formed friendships on Shiv uh, like and there's dragons and oh it's on fire which is basically it but it's the art for this piece is like a stitched tapestry Stephen Belladin who illustrated this this is all painted in oils it's insane yeah like to get that level of detail in the oil paints like takes so much focus and so much time and so much effort the the final piece on this is just incredible yeah he deserves all the props and like like i feel like we say this about every saga art but every saga art we've seen so far is just awesome um this is as as far as a high profile thing to make history really mean something in this set sagas are just I, I know what's what's beyond a home run it's whatever that is like what <laughs> what's better than a grand slam it's that that's what the sagas are and like from like all the sagas we've seen so far tell their little historical piece in a different art style so like we have gerard as a statue we have stained glass we have uh, a tapestry um the the Frexian scriptures is like carved into a um a Frexian sacrificial altar. Like like every one of them is a different real world art style that depicts a fake event in Dominaria's history as modern Dominarians see it and then put it on card art in a special frame in a trading card game in the real world. Like there's just like so many different levels of inception style storytelling with these i think they're just fantastic so the next one we want to talk about is fall of the thran uh which is a very cool one because it depicts the city of uh, halcyon of the thran that was their capital way back in the day uh above it all is the null sphere um which at the time was known as the null sphere it was kind of a control center for power stone powered artifacts uh, and it also had the ability to absorb mana. So Yogmoth was using it to detonate these like doomsday weapons. And then to prevent the doomsday weapons from destroying more than he wanted it to destroy, the Null Sphere would suck up the mana, the excess mana or power that was generated. Uh, and so in order to defeat him, what they did is the, the Thran, who had been taken hostage aboard the Null Sphere, shot themselves into space. Uh, and it killed them and the Phyrexians on board. But what it also did is when uh, Yogmoth detonated his final doomsday weapon outside the city of Halcyon, it did not slow down. Uh, so basically, at the very end of the story, everyone has to go running for the gate to Phyrexia or they're all going to die. And then once they do that, this art also shows a, uh, a large power stone that's split in two. Um, Yogmoth had implanted the the power stone that kept the gate to Phyrexia open in this artificer named Glacian, and I think I talked about that before, so I won't get into a depth in it. Uh, Rebecca took that and combined them uh, in order to seal the gate of Phyrexia, uh, the gate to Phyrexia behind them, and it stayed that way until Urza and Mishra discovered it years later, which we've talked about as well. But it's very cool to see all this in this very old classical style um and you can also note that there are new dominarian influences because uh it has two little blood stocks on here as the phyrexians and then two thran war machines as the thran soldiers that were fighting against the phyrexians during this battle and uh you can tell it's modern dominaria because the blood stocks are way more recent the the phyrexians that existed at the time of this battle 
were basically just slightly mutated humans. They they hadn't gone full creepy horror show yet. Uh, and then the, the Thran uh, war machine, a lot of the Thran constructs had backward bending knees for some reason. Uh, and the more modern stuff that was uh, redesigned based on Thran designs always has forward facing knees like, like a human would walk. And you can tell because of this art uh, that it's designed like the modern uh, Thran based designs. Do either of you have anything you want to say about this one? No, j- just that I just love the null sphere, which becomes the null moon, the the second moon. Of oh, Dominaria. good point. Yeah. Well, it's 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 yeah, it gets important in a little bit in the Ice Age, and then that's what they uh, the Wellerite draws uh, the white mana from to try and kill Yogmoth that we talked about earlier this episode. I I just think it's cool because it's like magic is is known as a fantasy IP, um, but it tells archetypically it tells sci-fi stories but then like this little element of sci-fi gets to bleed into it um and i just think it's so cool that the summit of the null moon is this little space adventure in the middle of this fantasy ip (laughs) um, which like i'm always gonna love that about um about the null moon that's like always gonna be a cool so we should mention um that's the null sphere depicted in this artwork is the same thing as the null moon that is in the artwork of Gerard that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So that's the thing on the on this, the haft of his spear. If you look at the original art for the legacy weapon, you can see the null moon also in there. Yeah, as they shoot down the um, moon. It, power. It, sh- it shows up in a couple pieces of art. It shows up in um, Urza's Ruinous Blast as well. And then the next one we want to talk about is Time of Ice, which looks like an illuminated manuscript from uh, the the um, Middle Ages. Yeah, like like I said, like this is just another cool real world art style that they can do a vertical piece for, which we all love. Time of Ice. We did a whole episode about the Ice Age. I think I think collectively between the three of us is probably one of our favorite periods in magic history. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Agreed. Yeah. That, well, I definitely know Jay. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think I think our interests all align over this a little lot, mostly because of how it relates to the current story. Yeah, like the other sagas, this one packs a whole lot of stuff into one image um, to reference the time, and this is a reference to the near, very near the end of the Ice Age. So we have this kind of city stronghold thing at the top. Is this city? capital city of Keldoran outpost actually yeah. it's a reference to um which is a card from alliances yeah you can tell because of the little um side gate out on the left but then it's got a pegasus knight and then a knight riding an aesir which are these giant falcons that um yeah. the Keldorans rode at the time that's the White Shield Crusader and Keldoran Sky Knight, and the Sthir all went extinct after the Ice Age. Yep. Um, and then we there were two main kingdoms in uh, at this time, uh, Keldor and Balduvia. So then on, on the left we have King Darian of Keldor, and on the right is Lovisa Cold Eyes, leader of the Balduvians. Um, they were at war for a time, but then united their kingdoms to fight back Limdul, who we can see stabbed through the heart here and his army of undead minions. Um, and this is, this is another cool point where Dominarian history is this kind of has this, uh, kind of restrictive iris and doesn't get to see the whole picture because if you were just an, an, uh, average Joe on Dominaria, you would look back and think, Oh yeah, this is where Limdul died because you're an average Joe and you don't know about the multiverse. Uh, what really happens is Limdul piggybacks a ride with the Planeswalker Tevishat off to Chandelar and starts at least two wars. <laughs> um, yeah, in in the novel, Lashrak shows up and drags him to Chandelar. In the comics, Tevishat doesn't. The point is, Limdul doesn't actually die here, yep. even though most Dominarians, like, like from the limited Dominarian perspective, this is the last they see of Limdul. So, oh, you know, of course... As you tell the story, sure, Lindel died, um, even though he went off and continued to do evil things in the rest of the other places in the multiverse. 
we should then, note a whole bunch of bodies behind them are covered in snow because there's yeah. a big avalanche during this battle. Yeah, it was also still the Ice Age. It might have snowed. So. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. then, then at the bottom, there are two circles. On the left is the young Jaya Ballard, whose art here looks a lot like her, what we think is her Planeswalker art. Yeah. Which uh, is on the booster pack for the Dominari booster pack that shows Jaya. Pretty sure it's her Planeswalker art. So this is the same pose. And then you can see the um, the curly Q, the thin line of curly Q flames behind her, which is like her time spiral card. And on the right is Joda, um, who's a immortal wizard who did all sorts of things during the Ice Age and yeah. later, and then in Time Spiral. Um, Carrie had But what a are neat... they wrapped in? Huh? But what are they wrapped in, those portraits? Carrie, you're fired for bringing this up. No. <laughs> uh, you're, <laughs> you're not actually fired. You're going full sevens. Um, full seven conspiracy theory. Merit Lage. Yeah, so yeah. these are Merit Lage's tentacles. Um unfortunately even though merit lage <laughs> doesn't do anything it's never gonna be merit lage in a magic story she's never gonna be the villain she's she has like a couple card names and a couple flavor texts and she appears like a couple times like just name dropped in, in the novel we don't even know if she's still on so Dominar. in the ebook it's like five times she's name dropped and that's because they're not sure if she's a planeswalker or not and they're researching planeswalkers and that's it that's her entire involvement in the story yeah, she was um, a, a throwaway, weird world-building thing that was inspired by, you know, the Cthulhu mythos. Um, and then that was it. She doesn't matter. Yeah. But Dark Depths is a card that people in Legacy really, really like to win with because 2020 flying indestructibles are pretty good at ending magic games there is something to be appreciated about the lore behind powerful marriage has to have like the highest <laughs> delta between lore insignificance <laughs> and popularity in magic's like i guess communal mind um yep. solely because of how powerful the card dark depths is like i, I think yep. the card is singularly responsible for keeping this do nothing character alive in people's minds even yeah. though it's never going to be Merit right. Lage. No one cared like, before. No one cared about Merit Lage before that card. Exactly. Um, and then there's the additional intrigue of being a plane, potentially spanning being without being a planeswalker, as deduced by Joda inside of the novel. Um, Joda's portrait here is fitting for his character throughout um, the Time Spiral block series. He kind of gets nailed down as a character who shows up in history books but reluctantly and is trying to he just tries to do his part in history but also not be recorded in it and him and joyra bond over this a little bit like the doctor it's it's funny yeah kind of like the doctor it's funny because like historians aren't sure if there's just one immortal joda or like a whole bunch of people with the name or a whole bunch of people so there's this character named Arkol, who's this historian who has this foreword in each of the chapters in The Eternal Ice. And it's funny listening to him talk about uh, Joda, at tra- trying to figure out him as a historical figure, because he's so, like, frustratingly elusive, and so they'd never know if it's the same guy, or if it's, like, some other guy with the name, or who used the name, or someone And even here, just, he's just yeah. the mage with his face <laughs> half-covered. Yeah, if, you, if we didn't know Joda so well, we'd have no idea who that is. Yeah, And the name of this card, specifically Ethan Fleischer on Twitter, um, oh who is a God, designer yes. for Magic, you can find him at, at Ethan Fleischer, um, had a whole tweet thread about digging into the um, PlayStation 1 video game uh, Magic the Gathering Battle Mage, which covers the events of the Planeswalkers War, and he goes into his process of discovering that there were books referenced within there and that is where he ended up getting the time of ice name from for a um, collection of stories about the ice age as recorded by caleb ben krug and taysir i believe yeah so caleb ben krug wrote the antiquities war uh, book 
the uh, she would have died before Time of Ice, so it was Taysir who wrote the uh, the Time of Ice history that this card is referencing. There you go. Yeah. Um, but it's such a deep dive. Yeah, and and Battle Mage is weird in that depending on which character you pick to play as, you can find different bits of lore info. So and like unless you know exactly which path to play the game in, you're gonna miss certain things. So like in order to find um the name of this work, you have to play as Christina of the Woods and go to a certain place on the map and interact with a certain character to go to this library to find a novel called The Time of Ice. Um, and I think it's hilarious because it's by Taser, who Christina used to date during the Ice Age um, <laughs> and then later dumped when it was all over. So, like, I, I think like, it's... He a- turned into, like, a creepy stalker ex and banished her next boyfriend, the planeswalker Sandrew, a minotaur, banished him across the multiverse from which it would take a millennia to return just for, like, smooching her. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> Christina's great. Like, this guy. If, if we ever get to a week where we talk about these kind of these older planeswalker characters a lot um i i have so much to say about christina the wood she is so down to earth and so reasonable at a time where planeswalkers were just lunatics hell-bent yeah. on either destroying um an entire plane of existence or destroying entire planeswalkers who were trying to destroy planes of existence um <laughs> like and and but like she's just so she's so much of a regular person compared to everybody else. So I think it's really funny that like she gets lured into the planeswalker war and like has to find this book and like she she walks into the library and she finds the book she's looking for and it turns out it's written by her ex about the time that they dated and like that's the thing that she needs for her quest. Like <laughs> it's like so sitcommy. Yeah. Um, like, like it's, it's, it's this is up. what the magic movie <laughs> should be about. <laughs> uh, so a couple quick last things, cause we got to move on from this, uh, along the borders are some little red circles with some creepy creatures in there. I wasn't able to figure them all out before this podcast, but like the one in the top left looks just like, um, uh, dread white. Uh, the one in the top right looks like a Phyrexian soul gorger. So they're like these creepy images of things from the Ice Age hidden in the margins here. Yeah. The other th- two things I want to mention, one is Andrew, I think I cut Andrew off before he could he could say, but that city I think is killed because that was the closest city to where this battle took place in the background there. And the second thing I wanted to say is um, that may or may not be Limdul. We're assuming it's meant to represent Limdul. But it yeah, is just fair. a zombie. But what is interesting about it is we've seen like everyone else here looks just like their card art, but then we get like a random generic zombie for Limduel. It I, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it would have worked like it was meant to be Limduel. It They could have just given him the little goatee and the horns and they'd be set. But what's interesting is he has this. It's a skull with these two print picks of light that look just like the t-shirt for the Dominaria Pro Tour, which <laughs> I guess we'll talk about another time, but it looks, it's a very interesting coincidence, but we really got to move on from this. So the other thing we got this week were the um, the Planeswalker decks with some awesome Zach Stella art uh, for both the Planeswalkers and some other cards in there. Uh, we get confirmation, at least as far as Planeswalker decks can be considered canon, that Jaya finally meets Chandra, uh, and we get art in Chandra's deck from, uh, she's in Yavamaya, uh, but there's art in the Karpluzan Mountains, which are a mountain range on New Argive, uh, which is right near Yavamaya. It's like the closest landmass. Andrew, do you want to talk about Meandering River since you're the one who discovered that? So we got this art for Meandering River through maybe... Uh, means that we weren't supposed to from a gaming conference. Um, but people, you know, when stuff gets on the internet, people see it and then 
it's just on the internet. What I noticed when it came out is that it looked like a very flowery version of a time spiral card, Calciform Pools, um, which there was a cycle of lands, storage lands in a time spiral of allied colors that showed a lot of the, the kind of ruined barren landscape. Calciform Pools was representing the the salted the salted uh, plains and the briny waters of Dominaria and how they've decayed into toxic, unsustainable, unlivable locations. But what's cool about Meandering River is that it seems to be in the same location, but it's now blossoming with color and life. Um, and I think that's it's something that the characters in the story have mentioned but I think that the set is also kind of, kind of trying to push is that, you know, the time spiral crisis was 60 years ago. Dominar is finally recovering. It's, it's like f- for like the first time, like it's recovered from apocalypses before, but um, as Karn, it says in the trailer, like maybe if we do it right this time, we don't have to, Dominaria doesn't have to sustain an apocalypse ever again. Um, so it's it's a very hopeful piece of art, which is very contrasting to Time Spiral, the last time we saw the plane. And then we get uh, Tefiri, who has some, we can already tell, has some reluctance to get back in the game, so to speak. Uh, we also learn the name of Tefiri's daughter, and unfortunately not much else, because the card is kind of eh. Uh, but it is uh, Niambi, a faithful healer. She's a human cleric who has no cleric abilities whatsoever. Yeah, she's the, just... she's the Planeswalker deck rare that goes and tutors up the Planeswalker. But, and, and all she does is summon her father. Which yeah. is very unfortunate because her art is awesome. And she looks really cool. I hope she appears in the story and has some cool yeah, moments. We, we, got a, we got a detail, I can't remember where now, that mentions that Teferi's own daughter is now older, looks older than he does. Yes. Um, I don't remember where it's from either, but I, yeah, we did get that. Uh, that's the thing. So, like, that's weird and timey-wimey, but also makes sense because time manipulating Planeswalker. But it's kind of a shame that Niambi doesn't do more. When, when we first meet Baron, he is already, like, th- over 300 years old when he goes to teach them um, and he looks like he's maybe 70. So, you know, blue planeswalkers, especially ones with time magic, probably just age slower as a matter of course. We know Venser did. No, don't try and make sense out of Venser looking young. That is, that is a dangerous road to walk down. Okay. That's fair. Uh, So the last card from there we want to talk about specifically is uh, temporal machin, machin. Oh my God. Machinations. Thank you. Temporal Machinations. Uh, and it has some great flavor text, which is, The Cabal soldier blinked and found day had become night. He had a face full of thistle seeds, and the old man was nowhere to be seen. And this is just, uh, and it shows an image, the, the images of that, of Tefiri basically. Fantastic. Freezing a Cabal soldier in place, and then just <laughs> blowing like a, um, a, a thing Candy of poppies line. at him. Yeah. Uh, and that is so perfectly Tefiri, because like when when we meet him in Time Spiral, uh, he mentions his only Planeswalker duel before he fights Nicol Bolas was the Shark Planeswalker, and all he did was just freeze her in place for a few hours, take what he wanted, <laughs> take the piece of coral he wanted, and leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's basically Tefiri's thing. I I really like that they brought the they've they've kept. Um... Teferi's kind of prankster nature because A, that makes him a lot less of an edgy pre-mending godlike planeswalker um, which... He deals with the pain through humor. Yeah. Well, and and it's it's going to be a, a good balance to him his struggles with mortality and his kind of... Like, like we've seen a lot the of hints so dilemma. far. Yeah, yeah. We've seen a lot of... Uh, hint so far that Teferi's kind of really bummed out, which means he's probably been bummed out for like 60 years, which is, you know, that this is like serious malaise here. Um, when you kill your whole nation, yeah. It's it's nice to see him not totally 
not one-dimensional, but like it it could be very depressing to see Teferi be totally depressed just all the time. So so it's it's I I like that he has this kind of uh, lightness to balance out his kind of depressive side. Yeah, agreed. Let's talk about the story. With that, let's move into the story. So episode three is, as I mentioned before, it's basically just getting together the the Weatherlight crew. Uh, so yeah, this Joyra... is this is like in X Men First Class when they go around when uh, Charles and it's the montage Eric yeah. go around trying to recruit people to their fledgling X Men team. This is that that montage is what this story was. So the, uh, the we learned that the Weatherlight hull is decayed, uh, and that Joyra is worried that the Power Stone core, which is the one with Sarah's realm inside, uh, may not work anymore. But she clutches her locket and uh, mentions she has a backup plan. And I think that locket might be the same one she has in the key art. I think we finally figured out what that is, uh, whatever this locket is. Uh, she also mentions she doesn't know if Teferi will help. Uh, with her plan for the weatherlight. Um, there's an angel named Tiana who has some sort of weird connection to the weatherlight. Like when she looks at it, she just starts crying. Um, and she's also a guardian angel with nothing to guard, which is kind of a weird uh, connection, but I think we'll learn more about that as time goes on. I have some ideas on what's going on with that. Uh, Malimo, which is the forest spirit of Lanawar, uh, like Yavimaya, I'm sorry, uh, like Maltani, who's the forest spirit of Yavimaya, who provided the original weather seed that made up the original Weatherlight's hull. Uh, Lanawar is now what is providing the wood uh, for the Weatherlight's new hull. Yeah, we should we should mention the the hull was the wooden parts of the Weatherlight's hull were decayed. Right. The Thran metal superstructure was still perfectly intact. Right, the skeleton um, was still there. Yeah, so. Thran made some uh, pretty good medals. They did. They did at that. Uh, so they all go to check on the Sarah's Realm Power Stone, and they're all worried it's not going to work. Uh, the Church of Sarah wants to reclaim it if it doesn't work because it's a holy relic to them. Yeah. But like when Tiana, which is gets pretty in considerate there, of them, they're like, if it still works, go ahead and use it. But you know, if it's if it's not going to power your thing, we'd like it back, which I think is pretty reasonable. Um, and they'd like dedicated a whole angel to this thing so yeah. i mean like they seem pretty chill um the tiana gets in there with the sarah's realm power stone and like it's it seems dead at first but then tiana like touches it and it hums back to life and like brightens up so it's there uh so anyway the the sarah's realm power stone works uh so joyra leaves uh tiana in charge of supervising the reconstruction of the weatherlight while she goes to uh, assemble the crew, right? So she goes to um, Jamura to Sukata. She well, first of all, she notes that there are lighter-skinned brown people and then darker-skinned brown people there, and the reasoning for that is Sukata. They are descendants of the people of Rabia. Uh, they're they're like merchants who came over from Rabia through a planar portal that used to exist, and they established that nation. And then the people from Zelfir or Femrev are more like African analogs, so they have darker skin. Uh, yeah, and, but, so she's um, like, the story mentioned there's a lot of Zalfiran refugees uh, yeah. who left before Teferi phased Zalfir out of existence. Um, so and, it's, it's this really kind of cosmopolitan port town now. Yeah, and some of them uh, are Sisse, these relatives. So uh, Joira finds Shana Sisse, uh, apparently they've taken Sisse's name as their surname now. Um, she finds her fighting these Makes sense. Uh, if I was the descendant of a super awesome hero, I'd want to oh, keep their yeah. name around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably uh, gets uh, free drinks at a couple places just for that. <laughs> at a whole lot of places. Uh, so she fights off a whole bunch of these Kabbalists by herself, and she just has this like awesome intro where she's like, beating up on a couple of them slices one of their throats and then turns to the ones who are left and is like are you done yet <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty cool opening scene 
Uh, so one of the things Shauna has is like this anti-magic field, kind of like Gideon has invulnerability. She has this resistance to magic, which Joyra implies is from Sisse, but it's not something that ever comes up with Sisse. But then again, not very many people are casting spells at her, so we don't actually know if someone tried to like throw a fireball at her and it didn't work. Um, and there's a history with Joyra and Sisse in the story that's uh, pretty interesting. The The way it could have happened is Sisse had the legacy, uh, the Weatherlight for a while before the Weatherlight saga, and she had actually met Tefiri in the Mirage and Visions uh, storyline. So it's possible she met and knew Joyra in the years between um, when she had started uh, venturing around on the Weatherlight and uh, when the Weatherlight saga properly started when she was kidnapped by Volrath. Uh, then Joyra goes to get a capuchin, um, but the one she wants, the, the warrior, Danatha, just says no. <laughs> yeah, that was great. And Very Danatha, terse. I, I love, it was just over in a second, like, no, I've pledged to defeat Benalia. Like, you're going to take me all over the place to fight them, but they're here. I want to fight them here. Um, but it's okay, because I feel like we're yeah. getting the better capuchin out of this, because Danatha has a teenage <laughs> little brother named Raph. <laughs> and Raph is great. He's like so full of crap. A lying little twerp. It's <laughs> so great. he blusters and talks about <laughs> Joda said he was the one one of the most promising mages he'd ever seen. Uh and Jaira was like, No, he did not, because Jaira and Joda have a little <laughs> bit of a history that they establish here, which I thought was pretty great. But she does mention she knew Joda before the Phyrexian invasion. I guess the implication could be she knew of Joda, even if she'd never met him, because they only met for the first time in Planar Chaos. I'm not sure if that's gonna be a, a retcon or not. I don't know what's gonna go on with that. But I, I also don't think retcon is the inherently bad word that a lot of people in fandoms seem to think it is. Um, Raths on the Weatherlight, though. Which means we again? can finally have Raths on the Weatherlight, though. So, so we can finally have Raph and Storm. <sighs> You've been waiting for that. You've been saving that one all day. Raph <laughs> <Raff> and Storm. <laughs> um, I like Raph a lot, though. He He's... He's really He's peppy. Kind of He's really excitable. Um, he really wants to go on an adventure. But like, like we we've also gotten used to magic characters being not not relatively older, but but being adults. Like, so in the in the Gatewatch, the youngest Gatewatch member, Chandra, who's twenty three, just like Carrie. Um, but Carrie's still a grown up. Um, uh. Ish. Debatable. <laughs> Adult-shaped human. <laughs> um, but, I mean, they mentioned in the story that Raph is, like, 13 or 14. Like, he's legit a kid, and we, we haven't had... The, la- the last story that's really been about a kid was there was um, a two-parter about Domri Raid's origin in Gate Crash. Um, and he's the last real, like, kid Kid character but but again he only he never appeared in that block story he was just in those those two-part stories so like i don't know it's 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 gonna be i think an interesting dynamic to have a literal little teenager next to a lot of seasoned like shauna like kicks some serious ass she is like they they talk about the ethics of bringing him on board yes they're like you know the, with the cabal here, you know, he could get killed here just as easily as coming with us, which I, I guess works. I don't know. Sure. Um, <laughs> I really hope they got a permission slip. <laughs> no, it's okay. He's a capuchin. He can do whatever he wants. I, I'm just like, I'm just waiting for him to get slapped uh, for asking how old Jora actually is. Because <laughs> that's A, really rude, and B, she's really old. But yeah, I'm excited for Raph. Yeah. Uh, so then the the next thing we see is when they return, Tiana has brought a friend, Arved, Arved the Cursed, who is a Sengir vampire uh, who was turned by Kamarov. I don't remember the exact name, but it was in the Karazov, or Kazarov. Kazarov, Kazarov, something Kazarov, like yeah. that. A Sengir vampire. a Sengir pureblood. So what we should mention about that is um, the further you get away on the chain from Baron Sengir himself turning you, the more animalistic you become as a vampire so um 
yeah, the there's... Sen Gear Pure Blood must be like the first generation turned, and then he turned uh, Arvad, which is why Arvad still looks like a person and not like a bat. Yeah, like um, a, a good example of the way the Sengar vampires kind of degradate over the bloodline. Uh, the original art, you have this really pallid bat-like thing, like licking up at blood, like almost kind of like in a hamster cage dripper drink thing. Um, but the other common Sengar vampire art has like a really fancy coat on and like kind of bat-like features, but you know, it's still dressed like a human and, and postured relatively like a human. Um, so that, that vampire's more closely related to the Baron himself than the original art. Um, and the Baron himself like wears armor is speaks very eloquently, um, very, very classic kind of, uh, I don't, I don't know how I want to describe it. Uh, very classic, elegant vampire. Bram Stoker. Yeah, very Bram Stoker, Dracula type figure. Yeah. Um, That's a good way to put it. So, yeah. If Ar- I say so myself. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, Arvad is. I think it's interesting that he's gets to. So, he's close enough to Sanger in the bloodline that he's still very much in control of his faculties. Um, but his dedication to his banalish knighthood is so powerfully impacting on his ethics that he's, uh, the story mentions the, maybe not the story, maybe it was the little card blurb. It was the, the, the blurb, yeah. Yeah, uh, mentions that uh, even though he's a vampire, he still doesn't let his need to feed on blood uh, like hurt or like kill people or get in the way of his like ethical duties. And we should note he's been enchanted by holy magic from the Church of Sarah to be able to walk in the sun, or at least be resistant to the sun. He's very much playing into the kind of repentant vampire trope, which the card repentant vampire did in the Odyssey block, which makes sense. He's the kind of vampire, uh, what's her name, would have really loved. Oh, Alenda? Yes, thank you. So Alenda would have really loved him. Probably. That's what she intended for her people is humility. And it's handy because we get more white black vampires. Yeah. Almost like it was <laughs> planned. <laughs> and then we get to surprise everyone's cat. surprise. Surprise Ajani. Um apparently Ajani is just gonna show up at the last second out of nowhere in the story from now on. That's just what he does. It's just so we refer to it as surprise Ajani or surprise cat, which is Interesting because Joyra was specifically waiting for him and he just kind of appears where they were working on things. So he has a pre-existing relationship with Joyra. And can I talk real quick about why I think that is? Go for it. Yeah. So like last year, over a year ago now, when uh, the story circle stuff first came up, which is the group with like the very loosely affiliated group that's like Tamiyo, Narset, and Ajani, who sometimes meet for tea and to talk about stories and the multiverse and things. They're not like a team or anything. Um, They're just friends. I men- yeah. I mentioned uh, people were asking, like, who else could be in it? And there's one person, one planeswalker we could deduce was potentially part of the uh, story circle, and that is Karn. Because Tamiyo has a story of Mir from Mirrodin, uh, which there aren't very many people who could have told her that story. And she also has a story of Sarah's realm, uh, which again, there aren't very many people who could tell her that story. And besides any Saren refugees who are still alive, the only planeswalker who could tell that story is Karn, because he's the only one who was there. And uh, the story, The Lost Confession, which is kind of a bridge between New Phyrexia and Theros, or Scars of Mirrodin and Theros, I should say, has uh, Elspeth talking about her last days on Mirrodin. And she mentions that uh, Ajani and Koth had met, uh, had met again, and she didn't know what they talked about. But this was after Karn had been revived, so it's possible that he learned of Karn or met Karn. Uh, during this time frame so there's your connection right there um it might just be simpler in that ajani when he went there uh to dominaria for the first time 
heard about Talaria, went to one of the Talarian academies and met Joira. It could just be that simple too. Yep. Because we did see, <laughs> we saw Johnny on Dominaria during Gathering Forces, the comic. Uh, Correct. Before the Scars of Mirrodin Black, where he returns right. so he already knew stuff. It. So he already know, knew about the plane. Yeah. So he, uh, Johnny had told the Gatewatch to meet there because it's somewhere he's been there, been before. But I, re- I really like the story circle connection because it implies that Johnny knows Karn, which will be really helpful going forward when Karn gets into the story, Dominar's story also, because then they won't have to do as much explaining on how they know each other, if they know each <laughs> other, or don't have to waste a lot of time introducing them to each other. And Johnny was also responsible for some attacks on Tolarian campuses <laughs> in the Magic the Gathering tactics game, which is critically acclaimed as um, one of the best magic games to come out. GameSpot said, this is a video game. <laughs> uh, so, oh my god, I've lost my train of thought because of that one. He actually does it. It's in the game, but that game's just entirely irrelevant, so had no coherent story to it. Uh, so that closed out the week. Um, Ajani was the last member of the Weatherlight uh, crew being assembled there. Although we know that Gerard will eventually, uh, not Gerard, Gideon will eventually join. So we have a lot of we- and uh, analogs. And Jace. And Jaya and Jace. So we have a lot of analogs from the original Weatherlight. Sort of. Um, Shauna is Sisse's legacy. That one's pretty easy. Uh, Raph is kind of like the Urtai. Hopefully he doesn't end up the same because he's kind of cute and i like him like urtai was just an ass urtai um, also got corrupted by the phyrexians so yes thank you that's the event jay is referring to hopefully that doesn't happen arvad and tiana kind of mirror crovax and selenia selenia was the garden guardian angel of crovax's family estate um when crovax had to kill her on wrath because she was corrupted by phyrexia uh he became cursed with vampirism so we have this angel vampire d- uh, dynamic before, and the last time we saw Crovax and Selenia, um, Cro- it was Crovax's spirit and Selenia's spirit, and Selenia recovers Crovax's spirit now, like pure, um, freed from the curse, and they kind of just ascend through the ceiling together, uh, presumably to whatever ha- heaven analog exists. Uh, so. One of my theories is the reason Tiana is so connected to the Weatherlight is because that she might be like a reincarnation of Selenia. And this kind of this story is playing out again with Arvad and Tiana, but it's playing out with a less, much less tragic end. Hopefully. Gideon seems to be kind of the Gerard who well, Gideon has actual like immortality armor while Gerard just kind of had plot armor, as they call it these days. Same thing, basically. <laughs> and then uh rather than Multani providing the wood, uh Malimo provides the wood for the new weatherlight. I also think it's dangerous to talk about the all these new characters as direct analogs to other characters. I think it's important to accept them as their own characters and accept that this new weatherlight crew will have different dynamics than the old weatherlight crew. So, so I think they're similar archetypes is what I should really say. Yes. When I'm, when I'm referring so to them like that. You can draw parallels, but I would recommend not getting too bogged down in what those parallels mean. Yeah, a whole lot of the modern planeswalkers, we can draw direct par- parallels to old planeswalkers. Like Elspeth's story almost perfectly mirrors Sarah's. Some of the other characters have very similar stories, like Jaya and uh, Chandra have very have a lot of parallels in their stories. Uh, that doesn't mean they're the same character or that they're ripoffs or anything like that. Um, but they do are they are these kind of fundamental archetypes that the players really and the readers really resonate with. But I'm excited to see where it goes and how how things play out in this new story. Yeah, And then, Andrew, you had one piece of speculation you wanted to share. Yeah, something I I realized very shortly after recording our episodes last week, which would have been really helpful to think about beforehand. But um, we we talked a bit about how Bells and Lock is an elder demon and what that could mean. But what I realized is um, 
Bells and Locks pants are on fire because he just <laughs> lies out his ass day in and day out. So I thought we don't say swears on this podcast. Uh, ass isn't ass a swear. isn't really a swear. <laughs> you can say ass in PG Wizards movies. Decide that. Carrie's calling us out. <laughs> um, point is, Bells and Locks a liar, and more importantly, his lies are directly trying to build him up as this kind of end-all, be-all, powerful figure um, throughout Dominare's history. And I, 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 ideally, in the kind of uh, cultural mind of Dominaria, nobody's better than the Elder Dragons. Um, but what if you could pretend that you were as powerful as an Elder Dragon and call yourself an Elder Demon? So we know his card states that he's an elder demon, but what if that kind of mechanical attribute on his card is a flavorful way of explaining that Belzenlock is lying about being an elder demon? Like, what? Because yeah, to note, Joyra mentions that they want to change history all the way back to the fall of the primevals. Well, yeah, right. And there are other demons on Dominaria, but. If Belzenlock wants to seem like he's more powerful, he might take on the title of Elder Demon um, just just as a way to make himself seem more omnipotent than he actually is to his followers. Um, so that'll be interesting to to once we finally get to meet Belzenlock in a story and get some of what his ish actually is. Um, I think that's something interesting to think about whether or not he's actually the elder demon his card says he is, or if that's just another one of Bells and Locks lies. Um, and I guess that's my final thought today too. All right, Carrie, final thoughts. Uh, go play Magic: The Gathering Battle Mage and find stuff in the library of Minorad. That's my final thought. <laughs> and my <laughs> final thought is ship Joyra and Joda. Or life. 